Welcome to Outdoing, the show that's proud to bring you stories from the people working with and for the natural world. This is episode two, Anthony. My name's Gabrielle Flynn. And I'm James Sylvie. And this is Outdoing. We are interviewing Anthony McCluskey today. And Anthony has a background in insect conservation, predominantly with bumblebees and butterflies. But would you like to tell us a bit more about how you came to conservation? Okay, well, yeah, I guess if we start from the beginning, um, I've always been an outdoorsy person. So from the beginning, I knew that I couldn't work indoors for my career or anything like that. So when it came to choosing what to study at university, I chose biology. Um, And at that time, I knew almost nothing about insects um, because in our degree, we focused on marine biology or parasites or birds or bats and things. Almost nobody talked about insects. And it was only during my dissertation that I came to study bumblebees, but they were all dead. They were all in the freezer. So it was bumblebee genetics. And again, I hardly saw a living bee or learned anything about bees during that time. And then during my master's degree in ecology, that's when I really got into insects. I had to learn how to identify bumblebees in orchards back home in County Armagh. So I was looking at bee, uh, bees in different types of orchards. So I had to learn how to do that. Um, I built up those skills and then it kind of evolved, evolved from there really um, into, into so many different types of insects. So what was it about that project and, and working in the orchard that sort of got you hooked? Uh, it was different for a start. So a lot of the actually a lot of the projects we were offered to do for our dissertations, I could have done anything. I was interested in all of it, but then there were a few on bees, and I thought, well, I'll I'll do that to see because I don't know anything about bees. So I'll, I'll see how it is. But then once I got into bees, I just got hooked. Um, and I think it, well, being outside was a big advantage. So you could only look at them on sunny days. So so uh, walking around orchards um, on sunny days looking for bees was just it felt unreal in a way because I thought it's so unusual a thing to do and I was enjoying it so much and then when it came to work it began to dawn on me that not many people get employed looking at bumblebees or other insects so I really had to carve a niche for myself in a way and for a while I just volunteered I just made up some presentations um, about bumblebee identification around Northern Ireland showing people how to identify bees because nobody really knew how to do it because you know there weren't many people with those skills Mm. and I realized I just enjoyed showing people how fantastic insects are you know i could tell them something about how bumblebees have smelly feet when they land on a flower they leave a smell and other bees can smell it so they then go, don't go to the flower and it would just it would blow my mind every time i learned it but then it would blow somebody else's mind too and they would mm. go and tell their friends and i thought that's it's it was just a, a really nice way to get into into conservation work mm. it's funny isn't it how quite often insects is a bit of an evolution of interest like i remember when i started my degree i wanted to be a primatologist mm-hmm. like because i guess that's what you kind of you're so used to seeing on the tv you know they focus in on the big charismatic species and i thought okay that's what i want to do mm-hmm. and in reality like i did that for a little bit and it's really boring they don't do very much and insects are always <laughs> doing something um and there's so much unknown 
about Oof. them. You know, mm. a lot of uh, when it comes to mammals, a lot's known, but for insects, you know, you, you can you could potentially find a new species like in Scotland. Like it is quite possible. Yeah, it's yeah. like yeah. studying aliens a bit because because they're so different to us in their behaviours and and like you said, smelling with their feet and and leaving that s- smell behind them. Yeah. You, yeah, you're just constantly like, whoa! I can't believe something living does that. <laughs> yeah. And it's true, they've got so many different life cycles as well, different types of life cycles. And I know, James, one of your interests is about the the beetles, which parasitize bees and have this unusual life cycle where they require solitary bees. Things like that you can discover just by reading, um, you know, stuff on the internet or in books and things. And it never occurred to you that that's happening. But then somebody tells you it and it's almost unbelievable. But I believe everything people tell me to do with bees (laughs) because they're incredible. And insects generally, you know, they have such a huge range of different life you know, life forms. Mm-hmm. What is there a particular type of like group of bees that particularly fascinate you? Is it bumblebees or solitaries or? Uh, bumblebees are my first love. They yeah. are my first love. That's how I really got into insects. Then I'm, I, th- I find solitary bees more of a challenge, which is why I'm moving on to those now because there are so many more species. Like mm-hmm. in the UK, we've got over 200 different species of solitary bee, um, and they've got different lifestyles. And um, yes, because they're more of a challenge, I think I'm, I'm spending more time with those now. But every time I see my first queen bee of any species, it's just like a hello moment. You think, oh, there we go again. Queen bumblebee, our first of the year. Mm. It kind of reminds you of how much you, you like you like bumblebees and things. So yeah. that's it. But, you know, I work with butterfly conservation now and I still I do love butterflies and moths. But bees are definitely my, my first love, I think, that way. Can you explain what are what what's the difference between bumblebees and what, what are solitary bees? And uh, yeah, where do honeybees come in all of this? Okay. Well, so most bumblebee species and honeybees are what we call social. So there's a queen in the nest and the queen has worker bees helping her to raise more bees. So she's the the top of the ladder, really. So she's controlling them and that's why they're social. So there's a queen and they have behaviours that have different roles as well. So most bumblebees and all honeybees are social that way. Um, there are different bumblebees, though, which um, are... Uh, they sound nasty but they're parasitic and they actually go inside the nests of other bees and kill the queen and take over her workers so they're they're called cuckoo bees and they're really interesting too but then the solitary bees they don't have a queen in the nest so that most of those species are smaller um, it's usually it's a single female who mates with a male um, she makes a nest she fills it full of food and eggs and then she just seals it up so she never has her offspring working for her and, and that's why they're called uh, solitary bees because there's no element of socialness in the nest or no hierarchy really. And so there's around, did you say there was around 200 species of solitary bee? Uh, about 250 species of solitary bee in the UK and about 25 species of bumblebee. And honeybees? Uh, one species of honeybee and it's um, most of those are kept by beekeepers now so there are a few wild ones but they're essentially uh, domesticated animals now so they're not they're not really in need of conservation help as such because they're not kept in the wild. They, they have pressures from disease, um, mostly from diseases really, and, and lack of food. But you know, we, we need to focus more upon the wild bees. So you obviously had a passion for biology and nature to, enough to make you want to study at a university. Do you have like an earliest memory where you were interacting with nature or something that made it all click in your mind that that's mm-hmm. what you wanted to spend your life doing? I think I always loved going to pond dipping when I was a kid, you know, when the school took us pond dipping or we went out with um, people in the summertime and you looked at dragonfly nymphs or pond skaters and things like that. And 
I couldn't get enough of that. I would have pawn dipped every single day if I could have, and I just needed somebody to take me out and give me a net to, to let me do it. Um, so I'm, I'm sure I always was fascinated by insects, and I used to get a magazine when I was a kid called Bugs Magazine. Did either of you get that? I don't know. Um, it was, you know how you get these magazines every week and you would get something with it every week so mm -hmm. you would get like something to build or whatever mm -hmm. so um the one i chose was bugs and it was all about insects or spiders or scorpions and things like that from around the world and every week you would get a plastic bit of like a spider you were making and it mm -hmm. glowed in the dark and stuff so when mm -hmm. i was a kid cool. i loved that kind of thing so yeah. i definitely had that urge to be interested in insects but i think it definitely went away when i was a teenager like i didn't um didn't pursue it in any way mm -hmm. i know i liked being outside but i didn't actively read stuff about insects then so definitely when i was a kid it was there um and i i was a gardener when i was a kid too so i had a grand uncle who was a gardener and he had a greenhouse and he lived close to us so he would show me how to do stuff with plants you know so you know how to grow tomatoes or grapevines and things like that so i think i definitely always knew i had to be outside like that was never up for negotiation with me after an initial introduction we moved to a different part of camo estate to explore the spring flowers, find out what other wildlife we could find. But also, as it's an urban space, naturally there's a lot of noise in this area. Sometimes there's planes going overhead, sometimes there's a runner going by, and so you might hear some of that urban touch to this episode. Just so you know. What does nature mean to you, and, and yeah, why have you decided to essentially dedicate your life to it? Hmm. Uh, for me, nature and wildlife just means everything. Like for me, it's it's an endless source of wonder. You know, I can go outside on any day of the year, no matter what weather conditions, and see something that interests me. So it's it gets me out of bed in the morning, really. You know, going outside and, and looking for things or helping people to understand wildlife. So it's always it's always there and it's always been there. So that's that's good enough reason for me. Um, and it's that excitement when you find something that you've been told about as well as can be interesting like the green hair streak butterfly i had seen photos of it people had told me about the green hair streak how beautiful it is and then i went looking for them and i found it and it was just one of those magic moments that you can't you can't get from a box set you know when you're binge watching something because in binge watching it ends you know mm -hmm. um, whereas with wildlife um it's it's limitless actually so mm -hmm. that, that's i think why it gives me gives me enough to go on Remember that time you saw that narrow border bee hot moth? Yes. Yeah, I was <laughs> You very just excited. about cried. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it was one of the species I've been yeah, looking for for ages, and then yeah. when they just suddenly, they're there, it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's something else. I, I had a similar experience with that species actually as well, because I'd seen photos of it mm -hmm. with bumblebees. I love bumblebees. Oh, there's a moth that looks like a bumblebee, because <laughs> it's mimicking them, and if, if people listening to this want to have a look at it, it's a, it's a moth which is big and hairy body with stripes on it but also has clear wings so it's really good mimic of a bumblebee um, and they come out in springtime and I had seen photos of it and thought what's this amazing moth and then the first time I had seen one I couldn't get the words out mm -hmm. it's like it's, it's one of those it's one of those and you know it's it's you, it's hard to replicate that I think with with other things in life so mm -hmm. yeah definitely I'm there with you on the, on the narrow bordered bee hawk moth absolutely can you give an insight into what your day-to-day -day is, is like? Yeah, so, so I'm a project officer with Butterfly Conservation and my current project is mostly focused on urban areas. So it's um, engaging with people who maybe traditionally weren't engaged with nature because of just they, it wasn't expected of them in some ways. You know, they weren't in the countryside seeing things every day. 
but um, so a large part of my job is around training volunteers to identify and record butterflies and actually get involved in monitoring work. So they're counting the number of butterflies seen at certain sites um, every week during the summertime so they can get involved that way. But we're also making new habitat for them. So we're making meadows, urban meadows. Um, and in Edinburgh, we made ones at Silvernows and Granton. So we made a couple of meadows there. And uh, yeah, so it's really trying to address the things that butterflies and moths need in urban places, but also get volunteers to realize that they can do something about it, you know, that they can help by either counting them or just changing the local communities, you know, telling their friends about gardening for butterflies or trying to get people to help that way. Do you do you think there's been a difference in people's level of engagement after COVID? You know, so there was a lot of talk during COVID when um, we were during we were going through lockdown and people's outdoor time was so critical because you got so little of it that I think people really appreciated it in a way they hadn't before do you do you think that's carried on and do you see like more volunteers coming forward and people that you maybe wouldn't expect before having an interest in this sort of thing yeah I think definitely during COVID we had a lot of new volunteers joining because I was running workshops online like zoom workshops that had hundreds of people at them who were probably just at home because they couldn't go anywhere else mm. but so that was a captive audience for me in many ways because they were they couldn't go anywhere else so they, <laughs> they got involved and that was great because then we got more people involved who maybe didn't have the time or inclination before and then whenever they realize that they can go out and see different species of butterfly um, more people were sending in records for sure you know we know that the record numbers for that first covid year were much bigger than the year after that so definitely i think mm. we were getting more records in that way and it's then just keeping them engaged because when people get you know distractions again mm. you can go shopping again or go traveling and things mm. it's important to then keep them engaged and, and realize that there's there's small things they can do mm-hmm. like just recording on the i record butterflies app you know it's a free app they can use to record stuff when they're out and about and that gives us great information so it's letting them know that they don't have to be people who are retired with lots of time that they can just be you know working full-time or busy and still get involved in our work i think the key to keeping people like that involved so you, you spoke about needing meadows in urban areas why why do we need more meadows and what kind of things are threatening butterflies so well we know three quarters of butterfly species in the uk are in decline and we know this because people have been counting them for like close to 50 years so we know that they are declining um many of the species we can help require meadow um kind of gra- uh, flower rich meadows some of them require other plants like trees and shrubs but a, a large number of species actually does require long grass and flowers to feed upon. And that's some of the simplest things we can do in urban areas. And when you look at the alternative, what the land was before, a lot of our urban sites are just amenity grasslands. So they get cut like twice a month in the summertime. So it's a huge waste of resources from the council and other landowners to do that. So in many of these sites, we're just able to t- take them over and change the vegetation that's there. And it's important because they require certain foods for their caterpillars. So the, a lot of the brown butterflies, so ringlets and meadow brown and things, just need long grass for their eggs. But obviously people don't want just long grass. Um, the, the adults need um, nectaring plants as well. So we're trying to bring more nectar-rich plants into these places, which will also then help bumblebees and lots of other insects. And a lot of my sites now, uh, almost all of them, so I've created nine urban meadows in central Scotland, and almost all of them now have, have grasshoppers. So even if you go out and there's no, no butterflies to see, you'll always hear grasshoppers singing, you'll hear bumblebees in it, you'll see other things, caterpillars of all different sorts in it. So really it's just providing more more sustenance for all kinds of insects. Mm-hmm. There is nothing better than that. Like I've left a little patch of my lawn just to kind of grow rank and uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I manage it as a, as a wildflower meadow. It's certainly not a species-rich grassland, but, yeah. you know, it's got a lot more diversity in it. And I remember the first year that a grasshopper just suddenly turned up, and yeah. oh, it's just the best thing. Because you just feel like you've built your little nature reserve, and yeah. the thing that you wanted, if you build it, they will come. Yeah. Get Costner. Yeah. Um, field of dreams. But, um, <laughs> yeah, you feel like, you know, you've created something, and you know, it's a bit of appreciation. Um, yeah. yeah, in a weird way. Yeah, and, and then you learn about the thing as well. So I didn't, you know, I kind of always knew about grasshoppers that they lived in grass. And then you realize <laughs> that, they, they, that they need grass. That's mostly what they eat. Or the, the young grasshoppers and things just eat vegetation and grass and such like. So that's a really simple thing you can do to help grasshoppers. And even if they're not incredibly rare or threatened, you're still inviting wildlife into your, into your garden. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, wildlife really needs it at the moment. You know, it's really a perilous state. Um, when you look at the state of the countryside, um, there's a lot of uh, good sites, for, formerly good sites for nature, which are just disappearing. So we have to do our best in, in, wherever we can. We were just talking about all the all the things that are threatening insects, one of them being just a lack of habitat. Other than all that habitat being removed, what other kind of things are threatening bees and butterflies and insects generally? Well, nowadays, one of the bigger threats, um, more modern threats, would be light pollution, really, you know, for moths. So lots of research now is showing, uh, some research which came out last year was looking at the abundance of caterpillars in roadside verges, which were lit or unlit, and hedgerows, which were lit or unlit. And the numbers of caterpillars was, I think, half, half as many caterpillars in hedgerows, which had LED lights near them, you know, streetlights, compared to other hedgerows nearby, which had no streetlights. So that's like a modern uh, modern threat, which is affecting moth numbers. And we know moths have, the abundance of moths and traps has declined by a third in the last 50 years. So for every three moths there were, there are now only two. Um, and that will really affect then other things in the environment. So that will affect bats and the birds which feed on them. And that trend's only getting worse. You know, it's, it doesn't seem to be improving at all. Um, and even in the last 10 years, declines for some species have been steeper than they, than they were previous to that. So there are, there are different effects, there are different things like that happening, um, which have just made everything worse, which was bad before. Um, and I guess nowadays there, there's a greater disconnection in the countryside, because in the past there might have still been remnants that were connected to one another, and those are getting fewer and further between in many cases. So you're getting species just getting stuck um, and not able to spread around the countryside. Mm. So that's, a, that's, a really, um, that's another thing that's happening there. Um, you, you talk about light pollution and uh, this is a solution-based podcast where we like <laughs> yeah. to talk about how to fix stuff. Yeah. Um, obviously, people people uh, like the lace, li- like the light in cities and urban spaces yeah. for safety, for um, seeing where they're going, um, etc. How is there? Are there any solutions that still allow us to have light in urban areas? Yeah. Well. One of the good things about LED lights, um, even though they're actually they're more attractive to the moths, so they seem to be more damaging to them, LED lights can at least be dimmed. So a lot of the LED, a lot of the lights and street lights now are LEDs, so okay. they could be dimmed perhaps at certain times of night when they're less less necessary. Um, they could be put on timers that way. There are experiments where um, it could be that a car is driving along and it activates like a sensor, and then the lights go on in front of it, you know, for a few hundred meters a- a- ahead, so they're not left on all night because that's a waste of resources, you know, energy from that, but also um, it's damaging the moth populations. So there could be solutions like that which people could look into. We are totally obsessed with light at night, like, mm-hmm. aren't we? You, you know, you, you drive by a, a city and 
office lights will just be left on, um, you know, there's street lights on where you're like, does anyone even walk down here? I mean, it is nuts. And I remember I used to live by a bicycle path and the number of moths just completely went off the side of a cliff when they put in street lighting. Mm. Um, you know, I used to get garden tiger moths, which is like this amazing uh, moth, which, you know, you speak to people who are over the age of like 50 or 60 and they, you know, they say they saw them everywhere and they call yeah. the caterpillars woolly bears and we just don't see them anymore at all. And I never caught another garden tiger once they'd installed those street lights. So mm, I think it is so like good. a major issue. As a woman walking through a city, like light's important because it, cause you need it for safety. But the thing that annoys me is the totally unnecessary lights, which is like, yeah, like you said, shops being lit up. Like, why are shops lit up? People know those shops exist. They know what you sell. They can go online. They can see what you sell, or they can see it during the day. That that really annoys me. But also the fact that, but also like you said, the fact that we won't just implement simple solutions that still allow safe passage, but also reduce the amount of light that's that's pouring out. There's obvious solutions that still provide safety for people that need it and and also reduce our impact on the environment and yeah we just we just don't act fast enough even though we have the knowledge there and it's just because yeah it's just trying to get people to it's it's just trying to get people to realize how important it is to save insects and they just seem to not get it yet even though literally ever it says if the bees die we die Mm -hmm. the same it's the same with moths if the moths die we die because we need moths for pollination as well. Yeah. Um, it's frustrating. And, and, and even just if people aren't interested in insects, if they if they like birds in their garden, if they want birds in their garden, they need to have the insects there. Mm. So um, there's a statistic about blue tits that each chick can eat 100 food items a day, and that's live stuff. So that's spiders and insect, you know, grubs and caterpillars and things. So if there's 10 chicks in the nest, that's a thousand food items a day, and they can be there for um, maybe 20 or 30 days. So up to 30,000 food items they need to raise one nest of blue tits. So if people want to have more birds in their garden, they need to start with the insects and they need to start with the plants that help the insects. So it's really going back to, to planting really, and also about pesti- using pesticides and things in the garden and, and not using pesticides and having more wild spaces as well. So not expecting everything to be uh, so neat because nature isn't neat you know we need mm-hmm. if we want to have nature we need to we need to work with it mm-hmm. so interesting yeah we spoke a couple of times about gardening and i i find that a lot of entomologists are really into gardening mm-hmm. uh, are, you, are you into gardening do you do a bit of uh, wildlife gardening yourself i do i do a lot of wildlife gardening yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, um and for me it's it gives you something to do as well like in the months when there's not stuff to look at so if there's not many insects around you can still be doing stuff to help them in the garden like the, the following year and then you can see your results then so you can sow a wildflower meadow in your lawn and the following year it'll be full of wildflowers and then you get different bees and things appearing so for people that don't have a garden and live in a flat like me what what one thing can someone do to help the biodiversity in their area well, if, if you have space to do any planting, so if you've got a small balcony or a window box, um, drought tolerant planting all the way. So you can ask in garden centres what plants will survive drought. Um, and a lot of the herbs that you can use in your kitchen are also useful for insects. So like thyme, uh, oregano, rosemary and things like that all have flowers on them. So just grow those. You can eat 
eat the plants, but also then the flowers will also be food for insects. So I always recommend drought tolerant planting because there's really not a lot of room for soil if you've got a, a balcony and you want to keep it as light as possible. So I go for seaside plants like um, I grow sea campion and birds with trefoil and lots of other wildflowers which I know live at the seaside where there's really poor soil and they grow in sand. So I know that they'll be fine on my balcony and if I'm not there for a week they won't need watered. So that's my top tip. But also if you if you don't have access to growing space is to get involved in local groups. There's usually uh, friends off park groups which are always looking for more volunteers or allotment groups and things who want people to help out. So you might want to get involved in that and then start making a difference that way because they might be doing things the old fashioned way where it's very tidy and bedding plants and things and you could come along and suggest some something different. Mm, sounds good. Actually, I really like that idea of bringing the seaside to your uh, window box yeah. also. Yeah. Have you done that? No, I don't have any window boxes or, or hanging baskets actually, but I mean a lot of the species that Anthony uh, was mentioning I've got growing in my garden, but mostly as food plants, so like I've got a whole border that's just full of things like bird's foot trefoil and kidney vetch because you never know when you'll come across a caterpillar and you mm. need to feed it, so you have yeah. to have all the food you <laughs> yeah, that's growing that's in your true. garden. You never know. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We really are quite a niche group. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, thanks very much Anthony. Yeah, you're welcome, and thanks for thanks for the walk today around Camel. It's been really nice. That was a lovely wee stroll and chat. Yeah, I really enjoyed that chat. Not only was it in a really great urban space, but also just hearing Anthony talking about you know, his passion for communicating conservation to people. It's so important and something that's so often missed. It's great to have those really good communicators within the sector, and they're yeah, they're so important. So kind of all power to Anthony. The thing that I love about chatting to Anthony and the, the part of the conversation that I enjoyed the most with him was when we were all just getting enthusiastic about mm-hmm. about the what we care about. I found mm-hmm. that was like it really it really fires up your brain when you're around people who think similarly to you and who are passionate about the same things as you are and yeah, when you're around kindred spirits and it, it makes you feel less alone and there's a lot of people these days talking about eco-anxiety and climate anxiety because we're hearing about all these disasters in the news and how nature is declining and climate change is causing extreme weather and it's causing people to die all around the world and and often that makes people feel isolated and powerless and I think that one of the best cures for that or one of the best solutions to alleviating some of that anxiety is being around like-minded people and doing things to actually turn it around. So yeah, going out and being nature's doers. And so it was, it was just really nice to be in his company. Definitely, yeah. And speaking of getting out and uh, and doing stuff to help, should we give the top tips? Yeah, we've got two top tips this week. Um, the first one is, at this time of year, all these leaves are falling and it's a bit of a current human habit to scrape all these leaves away and stick them in the bin. But actually these leaves could be really, really useful for overwintering insects. So what we would encourage you to do is put them in a corner and let them be a safe haven for all those hibernating insects. Yeah, and my top tip is, uh, I've noticed around the place where I live at the moment, there's a lot of people who have apple trees and the apples are just left to rot into the garden, which seems like an absolute crime to me. You know, there's always a crumble or something that could be made. 
But if you have noticed that there's uh, some windfall apples, either from a neighbor or in a park or um, somewhere where you can collect those apples legally, then it's worth collecting them up, storing them if you can, or sticking some in your freezer and then bringing them out in midwinter. And if you've got a garden or a green space that you can put them out for uh, wild birds, that's really important because things like thrushes, birds like thrushes, really need uh, a little boost through the winter, particularly when there's snow on the ground. So if you can take those apples out, defrost them, put them out when there's snow on the ground, you're doing something really good for, for local wildlife, particularly birds. Excellent. This has been Outdoing. We look forward to seeing you next time. Outdoing is presented by Gabrielle Flynn and James Sylvie. It's produced and edited by Gabrielle Flynn. The opening track is Frenzy of the Meeting by Braybach. The closing track is Back to the Woods by Jason Shaw. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Have you got any questions for us? Or is there anybody you think we absolutely have to interview? You can contact us by email or Twitter. Links to those in the episode description. Mm-hmm.